You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. everyone and welcome back. My name is Amanda Mata. I have a TikTok about the royals, a degree in art history, and a desire to over-explain things so that I will win every argument ever. I hope that you will be able to do the same after listening to me talk for a while. Before we dive into this week's episode, just a quick reminder that I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash fact if you would like to support the work that I do for the show and over on TikTok. I do post episode scripts over there and you get the episodes about a day early. Um, There are a few other perks related to my royal commentary, but those are kind of incidental at this point. Um, So if you do want to join, that is patreon.com slash fact. Secondly, and more importantly, I should have led with this, I am recording this on Friday, June 24th, which in the US is the day that the Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade. Essentially, this turns back the clock 50 years for women's rights um, for no real good reason other than we live in a capitalist hellscape. Um, But there is, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel, which is that people have been preparing for this day. We have organizations that are ready to step up and help us. To that end, I have a new t-shirt in my merch shop, which is linked um, on my Instagram, my personal Instagram, which is Mata underscore of underscore fact. Um, 100% of the proceeds from this shirt selling will be donated to the National Network of Abortion Funds. So go check that out. I also have it linked on um, the show Instagram and my stories. I'll try and post it there again when this episode goes up. Um, Please check it out. Support if you can. If you cannot support, you know, there are other things you can do, like vote. Vote for people who are going to protect... um, people with uteruses right to choose that would be awesome let's return to a place where we are still gonna feel our feelings but it's a little bit more low-key this is stuff that um has already happened in the past and there's no changing it now so that's great if you are new to art of history the premise here is pretty simple each episode i select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past and i will let you know what that's going to be today in just a moment We are actually seeking to answer a specific question today, so that's fun. I will also post the artwork and some supplemental images over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. I will guide us through a look at the piece together, and then we'll explore the bigger picture behind it. Today on the Art of History Podcast, we are endeavoring to answer the question, What is a muse? What is a muse indeed? I will now turn it over to our lovely co-host guest star for this episode, Julia, for the answer. I mean, I was Josh Safdie's muse when he wrote Uncajan. Right. Ugh, so insightful. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. No, okay, as much as that clip is a work of art, we need to take this a bit deeper. 
I'm not sure that Julia Fox quite knows what a muse is, but really, do any of us? We hear this word thrown around in relation to artists, particularly male artists, quite a bit. Google tells us that a muse is, quote, a person or personified force who is the source of inspiration for a creative artist. Usually this involves idealizing that person or thing. In the last episode, we briefly touched on Botticelli incorporating great Florentine beauties into his artwork and elevating them to represent divine notions of love. Often, artists built sort of a cult of personality around the people or places they were using as a muse, perhaps projecting an emotional or philosophical narrative onto them. This was the case of many of the muses of old, but how has this idea permeated into the modern age? To answer this question today, we are looking at the work of Andrew Wyeth, a modern American painter, our first on this show, who lived and worked in my neck of the woods in southeastern Pennsylvania's Brandywine River Valley. Even if the name isn't familiar, you definitely know Andrew Wyeth's work. He painted one of the most famous and important works in modern American art titled Christina's World. That is the main piece that we will analyze together today, but there will be other works by Wyeth thrown into the discussion as well, because he has such a long and, I don't know, varied career, um, not necessarily in subject matter, but he had a bunch of phases in his life. So we will dive into a couple different areas. But first, a bit of background on Andrew Wyeth, the artist, to get us started. Andrew Wyeth was the son of another artist whom we need to start with. This was the famous American illustrator Newell Converse or N.C. Wyeth. N.C. and his wife Carolyn Bokius Wyeth, I don't know if I'm saying that right, had settled in Chadsford, Pennsylvania in 1907, building a homestead of sorts consisting of a house and a studio on a hill overlooking the valley. This is where Andrew was born in 1917. He was the youngest of N.C. and Carolyn's five children. N.C. Wyeth was a big fan of American transcendentalist Henry David Thoreau, so naturally he found the coincidence that Andrew was born on Thoreau's 100th birthday particularly thrilling. N.C. was an illustrator known for his work in magazines, posters, and advertisements. His best-known creations were his illustrations for books such as Treasure Island and The Last of the Mohicans. I myself have a really beautiful copy of The Odyssey that was illustrated by him over on my shelf. He was a brilliant painter and illustrator with works that make dramatic use of light and color and texture, but N.C. was always troubled by the distinction that was made between illustrators and artists in America at the time. There was an idea that mere illustrators were lesser than those who painted on a grand scale, and Wyeth sought recognition in other spheres of art to escape those connotations. His full body of work contains over 3,000 paintings, which were mostly turned into the illustrations for books, of which he illustrated 112. There are also still lifes, portraits, murals, and landscapes rendered of Chad's Ford and the family's summer property in Port Clyde, Maine. By the 1920s, N.C. was a veritable celebrity, and the family often had notable American celebrities as guests. These included F. Scott Fitzgerald and Mary Pickford, among others. Their home bustled with, quote, creative activity and competition. N.C. and Carolyn's other four children, Andrew's older siblings, were all talented in some way. Henriette Wyeth Hurd, the eldest, would become a painter of portraits and still lifes. Carolyn, the second, was also a painter. Nathaniel Wyeth, the third, was a successful inventor. And Anne, the fourth, was a talented musician from a young age and went on to become a composer. 
N.C. was an attentive father, fostering each of the children's interests and talents. He was also the only teacher that Andrew ever had. Andrew was home-tutored due to his, quote, frail health. He was apparently very prone to illness and contracted whooping cough at a young age, causing him to lead both a sheltered life and one that was, quote, obsessively focused. Wyeth later recalled of his childhood, quote, Pa kept me almost in a jail, just kept me to himself in my own world, and he wouldn't let anyone in on it. I was almost made to stay in Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest with Maid Marian and the rebels. N.C.'s influence, as much as it was generous and nurturing, weighed heavily on all of his children, particularly on Andrew, who was stuck at home. He could be a, quote, cruel, sometimes violent taskmaster, prone to extraordinary mood swings. Like his father, though, Andrew read and appreciated the works of Robert Frost and Henry David Thoreau and studied their relationships with nature. He was also influenced by music and movies and the emotions that they stirred. The Wyeth family was close and would spend time reading together, taking walks, fostering a closeness with nature, and developing a respect for the history of the region and the Wyeth family. Perhaps predictably, Andrew started drawing at a young age. I've heard him described as being a draftsman before he could even read. By the time he was a teenager, N.C. brought Andrew into his studio for the only art lessons that he would ever receive. As a principal, N.C. Wyeth believed that an artist should create without giving a thought to how their work would be received in the wider world. He once wrote, The great men Thoreau, Goethe, Emerson, Tolstoy forever radiate a sharp sense of that profound requirement of an artist to fully understand that consequences of what he creates are unimportant. Let the motive for action be in the action itself and not in the event. I know from my own experience that when I create with any degree of strength and beauty, I have no thought of consequences. Anyone who creates for effect to score a hit does not know what he is missing. I feel like those are words to live by right there. <laughs> to be a great artist, NC thought, this required emotional depth and openness to look beyond oneself to the subject and the passions that it stirred, and then relate those faithfully. A great painting was one that enriched and broadened the artist's perspective. N.C. inspired his son's eventual love of rural landscapes, a sense of romance, and artistic traditions. With his father's guidance, Andrew also took on figural studies and watercolor painting. He also studied art history on his own, admiring many masters of Renaissance and American painting, especially Winslow Homer. Although creating illustrations like his father was not a passion that Andrew wished to pursue, he did produce some under N.C.'s name while in his teens. The young Andrew was known to take solitary walks to gather inspiration and became very emotionally intimate with his subjects as he started to paint and draw. He strove for a spiritual understanding of the thing that he was painting and typically created dozens of studies on a subject in pencil or loosely brushed watercolor before executing anything close to finish. He would eventually become notable for gravitating towards a few singular individuals, subjects in his works. One might almost call these his muses. But the first of these muses was not a person at all, but a place. As a teenager, Wyeth would walk the hills of Kerner Farm, the home of Anna and Carl Kerner, the family's neighbors in Chad's Ford. Andrew would quickly become close friends with the Kerners, with them eventually inviting him into their home. In the early 1930s, Andrew began painting the Kerners themselves, but it was their farm that would become one of his most important subjects for the next 50 years. He documented not just the Kerners themselves, but placed them always within the context of their home, the landscape, and their life. 
Wyeth said about the Kerner farm, I didn't think of it as a picturesque place. It just excited me, purely abstractly and purely emotionally. Many of his paintings, including those done on the farm, banal as they may seem on the surface, are closely tied up in this way to Andrew's emotions and his personal biography. From the earliest point in his career, Andrew chose watercolor as his preferred medium, combining precise illustrative details with an impressionistic sense of light and movement. He had his work featured in an exhibition for the first time in the spring of 1933 at the Wilmington Society of the Fine Arts in Delaware. In 1937, at age 20, Andrew had his first solo exhibition of watercolors at the Macbeth Gallery in New York City. The entire inventory of paintings at that show sold out, and his path in life seemed pretty solid. <laughs> Wyeth continued to add artistic media to his arsenal, picking up a dry brush technique in which he squeezed most of the moisture and pigment out of the brush before applying it to paper. Building up layers in this way, he was able to start creating richly complex textural effects. He would also learn the medium of egg tempera from his brother-in-law, American painter Peter Hurd, around this time. Yes, this family and anyone who entered into it was artistic. Let's just establish that from here on out. Egg tempera is an ancient painting method that involves blending dry pigments with egg yolk and distilled water. Each layer of tempera is more transparent than painting with oil, for example, as each layer holds less pigment. It is time-consuming as it requires you to paint in multiple layers upon layers upon layers, but the end result is opaque, lustrous, luminous color and richly varied surfaces. It is not a medium that allows you to be spontaneous, it's fast drying and it's permanent, pretty much the exact opposite of something like watercolor. But the thin layers allow light to penetrate through and reflect off of the pigments involved, giving tempera paintings their really unique, like I said, luminous quality. Andrew's style was different than his father's. It was more spare, it was drier, and it was more limited in color range. He stated a belief around this time that he wanted to stay away from, quote, picture making, as was his father's forte. He did some book illustrations in his early career, but never to the extent that N.C. did. Around the time that Wyeth's style was diverging from his father's, N.C. became moody and depressed. The divide between father and son, both artistic and personal, would only widen further when Andrew met Betsy James. Andrew had been invited to Cushing, Maine in July 1939 by a fellow artist, Merle James. I think it entirely possible and even likely that James had an ulterior motive here for inviting Andrew for this visit because he introduced him to his three daughters, including the youngest, 17-year-old Betsy. Betsy would come to have an influence on Andrew as strong as that of his father, so much so that NC would soon begin to resent her. Betsy encouraged Andrew to disregard his father's advice and find his own artistic path. N.C., for his part, became competitive and probably slightly jealous of the recognition that Andrew was starting to receive for his paintings. It's likely that where he was previously comfortable with his art speaking for itself, N.C. began questioning his own career as an illustrator, regretting that he never became accepted as a fine artist. Nevertheless, N.C. was present when Andrew married Betsy on May 15, 1940. Their first child, Nicholas, was born in 1943, followed by James, or Jamie, three years later. By this time, Andrew was a rising star in American modern art. Now, Betsy is the one person close to Andrew who I think did not achieve Muse status. She never comes across as a source of inspiration to me, although she was integral to Andrew's artistic success. 
Aside from mothering two young boys, Betsy also played a critical and lifelong role managing Andrew's career. She was once quoted as saying, I am a director and I had the greatest actor in the world. It was Betsy who, back in Maine in 1939, had just learned to drive, who had offered to show Wyeth around Cushing, Maine. This led them to stop near a farmhouse owned by the Olson family. There, Betsy introduced Andrew to two of her friends, siblings Alvaro and Christina Olson. After being introduced, Wyeth built a friendship with the Olsons and was soon allowed full roam of their farm. There, he began a number of studies of the Olson house and property, similar to how the Kerner farm had become a source of inspiration during his formative years. Eventually, Andrew would create nearly 300 drawings, watercolors, and tempera paintings at the Olson's farm, dating from 1937 to the late 1960s. The most notable of these was, of course, Christina's World. We have a few more formative life events to hit before we get there, however. In October 1945, back in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, N.C. Wyeth and Andrew's three-year-old nephew, Newell Converse Wyeth II, were killed when their car stalled on some railroad tracks near their home and was struck by a mail train from Philadelphia. Wyeth referred to his father's death as a formative emotional event in his artistic career, in addition to being a horrific personal tragedy. Quote, my father's death put me in touch with things beyond me, things to think and feel, things that meant everything to me. Wyeth felt that his father's passing allowed him to finally feel, without the need of an intercessor like nature or another person. Soon after, his art consolidated into what we know as his mature and his enduring style. The site of the accident, Kerner's Hill, part of the Kerner's farm property, would become a recurring setting of Andrew's paintings, beginning with winter 1946. This one I'm going to put on the Instagram as well. The fact that a landscape had now become physically and emotionally intertwined with Wyeth's personal trauma would now play out in some of his more psychologically charged works over the years. After the loss of his father, Andrew's depictions of landscapes became more somber in color and mood, and the figures displayed more emotion than ever before. He began earnestly painting or drawing the portraits of people with whom he had developed close relationships, although one of his greatest regrets in life would be never having the opportunity to paint a portrait of his father. He did, however, produce a number of images of Christina Olsen, including, of course, his most famous. Christina was disabled from what was for a long time thought to be polio, but what is now thought to have been undiagnosed Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, a genetic nerve condition. CMT, as it's called, causes muscle weakness and a lack of coordination in the limbs. For Christina Olsen, it meant that she was unable to walk, so she spent most of her time at home in the Olsen farmhouse. She was able to work around the home, however, and when she did move around, she refused to use a wheelchair, preferring to crawl using her arms to drag her lower body along. She appears in four of Wyeth's paintings. The first time that Andrew painted her for a painting called simply Christina Olsen from 1947, it was in a pose that he had just happened to catch her in. She had finished all her work in the kitchen, he said, and there she was sitting quietly with a far-off look to the sea. At the time, I thought she looked like a wounded seagull with her bony arms, slightly long hair back over her shoulder, and strange shadows of her cast on the side of the weathered door, which had this white porcelain knob on it. And that was the beginning of the painting. She didn't mind being disturbed at all. Actually, she enjoyed it. 
Andrew never instructed Christina to pose for him, preferring to catch her in a, quote, truly human position. The challenge to me, he explained, was to do justice to her extraordinary conquest of a life which most people would consider hopeless. Wyeth eventually became more of an honorary family member to the Olsons than merely a guest or an artist in residence. This is from Ruth Millington's book Muse, discovering, I'm sorry, uncovering the hidden figures behind art history's masterpieces. When he wasn't working, Wyeth would comb Christina's hair and wash her face. He also recalled with admiration that she was a, quote, very intelligent person whose company he enjoyed. They would spend hours discussing books, and when apart, the pair sent one another letters. Olson wrote frequently about the wild animals she spotted on the farm. The nature of this close relationship is just one of the things we can chew on as we finally, I know, look at Wyeth's 1948 painting titled Simply Christina's World. So now would be a great time to hop over again to the Instagram or to your search engine of choice or the Museum of Modern Art's website for a really good version to pull up an image of the piece. So what are we looking at? There are two main players in this painting, the landscape and the woman lying within it. We are facing a treeless field of dried out grass. It's long and unkempt in the foreground until it reaches this place where the yard of the Olsen farmhouse is delineated by a mown section of grass. There, the proudly run-down farmhouse and a group of outbuildings sit, quote, ancient and grayed in harmony with the dry grass and overcast sky. The house has been described as, quote, an unremarkably bleak family home with laundry flapping on the line and a flock of swallows fluttering around the barn. The woman lying in the foreground wears a pale pink dress pulled into her slender waist by a soft black belt. Her slightly disheveled dark hair has been pulled back into a bun, although a few wisps have escaped to fly around her head like the birds in the distance. With her back to us, it's hard to immediately know how the woman might feel about this place. Although she appears at first glance to be in, quote, a position of repose, she is, upon closer inspection, far from relaxed. Quote, one thin arm stretches toward the old gray farmhouse, while the other seems to prop the woman up, making her appear surprisingly alert. The woman's silhouette is rigid, giving the impression that she is, quote, fixed to the ground. Her knuckles are tense, and her hands almost take on the color of the soil as they sink into the grass, as if she were being transformed into the earth. Is she perhaps waiting for the arrival of someone or something? That's what I used to think. I remember being shown this painting in, I believe, seventh grade writing class and told to write a story to go with the picture. When Wyeth hung Christina's world in his home in 1948, no one seemed to pay any attention to it. And in October of that year, when he shipped the painting to his New York gallery, he commented in discouragement to his wife Betsy, this painting is a complete flat tire. But within a few days, whispers about the remarkable painting were apparently circulating in New York, and within weeks, the painting was purchased by the Museum of Modern Art. There, quote, thousands of visitors related to the painting in a personal way. Somewhat to the embarrassment of the MoMA curators who favored European modern art, it became first a best-selling poster and then the most popular painting in the museum. Andrew had created, quote, an icon, a work that hovers in the minds of millions of viewers as an emotional and cultural reference point. 
a retrospective on Andrew Wyeth's work, which I saw a few years ago at the Brandywine Review Museum, stated that the painting has a, quote, distinctly gothic quality to it. In part, a curator wrote, it is a meditation on death. How did we get from a picture of a farmhouse and a girl in a field to mortality? The title Christina's World, which came courtesy of Betsy, is our first indicator that the painting is more a psychological landscape than a portrait, a portrayal of a state of mind rather than a place. In Christina's World, Wyeth said that he wanted to, quote, do justice to Olson's extraordinary conquest of a life which most people would consider hopeless. If, in some small way, I have been able, in paint, to make the viewer sense that her world may be limited physically, but by no means spiritually, then I have achieved what I set out to do. The classic interpretation of this work tells us that it represents Christina's inner world. She might be looking inward, with this house on the horizon representing the hard work and determination that has carried her forward in her life and which will continue to propel her into the future. This could just be a picture of a woman's, quote, unquenchable drive to survive, thrive, and make something of herself. And it is true that in part, Wyeth was actively seeking to paint from Christina's viewpoint. He called this, quote, more than just her portrait. It really was her whole life, and that is what she liked in it. She loved the feeling of being out in the field where she couldn't go, finally, at the end of her life. And what's more, Christina's world was said to be the real Christina Olsen's favorite painting. However, in a 2006 conversation with a Brandywine curator, Wyeth remarked that if he were to paint the work all over again, he would leave out the figure entirely. How can you have Christina's world without Christina? Well, in a way, we already do. The actual model for the figure in the painting was Betsy, then 26 years old. Christina was 45 at the time that Andrew was painting her for Christina's world. One could ask why Wyeth felt the need to replace Christina with the slim, attractive, small-waisted figure of his wife. To see what each of them looked like, uh, head over to the Instagram. I have a photo of Betsy and Andrew and a portrait of Christina on there. One could also argue that Wyeth replaced or sanitized parts of Christina with Betsy for the sake of his own notions of beauty. Or perhaps it was for practicality. Wyeth prepared pages and pages of sketches in advance of the final painting, and he needed Betsy to stand in for Christina as a model as he worked on it, quote, from 8 o'clock until 5.30 every day for weeks. Perhaps it wasn't so much about the physical presence of his muse as it was about everything that she stood for. Wyeth had set out to pay tribute to the everyday experience of his close friend and muse, whom he admired on many levels. The viewer was then invited to, quote, share a moment in Olsen's life, almost feeling the wind which catches her hair as she looks upon her farmhouse and the fields. But the viewer is not privy to the fact that the real-world vantage point of Christina's world is the cemetery where Christina's parents were buried. In fact, as we are encountering her in the painting, Christina in real life had actually just come from decorating their graves with flowers. Andrew Wyeth was likely preternaturally conscious of death, as one historian put it by this point, as his own frail health in childhood and the traumatic loss of his father would have given him a heightened sense of human mortality. Yet even though those facts may not be known to the viewer, in some way they are sensed. They suffuse the emotional experience of the painting, as another historian put it. 
what Wyeth has left out or painted out or turned his back on still resonates. But in her role as artist's muse, all of these feelings do get channeled through Christina Olsen, who invites us to see things from her perspective. With her thin, outstretched hand, tinged gray, she points towards her farmhouse as if inviting her audience home with her. This iconic image exists because Christina allowed Wyeth to access her story and her property. Some historians have approached this painting through the lens of Christina's physical person, through her disability. But in the end, that is not the point of the work, even if it is the reason that it ended up being painted. Ruth Millington says the painting doesn't, quote, forefront Olson's disability in either a condescending or salacious way. Instead, there is a quietness to it through which he not only banishes negative stereotypes of frailty, but also wipes out any romantic myth of the weak damsel in distress. He is not inviting viewers to feel pity for his friend, nor is he painting her as an aspirational manner. She has not been elevated to the status of an inspirational heroine within a dramatized scene. Christina Olsen died in January 1968, one month after her brother Alvaro. They were buried next to one another on their farm in the very cemetery that serves as the vantage point for Christina's world, which I will just remind you has become one of the most famous paintings in American art. Andrew wrapped up the project he was undertaking at the time of their death, but never again painted on the Olsen farm. But he was not to be without a muse for very long. With that, I am going to take a short break, but there are still a few decades left in Andrew Wyeth's career, and by a few I mean four or five, so we will have to revisit and see where he goes from here in just a moment. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, and we are back. We are going to pick up Andrew Wyeth's career and his next encounter with a muse in the late 60s, early 70s. 
At this time, he was pretty firmly classified as an American realist painter, like Winslow Homer or Thomas Aikens. However, we can also think of Wyeth as an abstract artist. He was an astute observer of reality, but he freely manipulated his subjects, transforming them in order to evoke memories, ideas, and emotions. We saw this in the way he allowed his wife Betsy's body to stand in for Christina Olsen's. Over on the Instagram are some of the other images of Christina, like I said, um, which read much more like true-to-life portraits than Christina's world. In a Life magazine article from 1965, Wyeth said that he even thought of himself as primarily an abstractionist. Quote, My people, my objects, breathe in a different way. There's another core, an excitement that's definitely abstract. My god, when you really begin to peer into something, a simple object, and realize the profound meaning of that thing, if you have an emotion about it, there's no end. He also once noted that meaning is, quote, hiding behind the mask of truth in his work. To tie a nice bow on where he stands within art history, we can also classify Wyeth as a regionalist painter. This modern art movement emphasized realistic scenes of rural and small-town America. Think Grant Wood's American Gothic for the most quintessential example. I want to talk about another of Grant Wood's paintings in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. In his art, Andrew Wyeth's favorite subjects were the land and the people around him, both at the summer home that he and Betsy owned in Maine and back in his hometown of Chadsford, Pennsylvania. It was in Chadsford that Andrew met the woman who was to become his next muse, Prussian-born Helga Testorf. When she and Andrew met in the early 1970s, Helga was living and working with the Kerners on their farm. She was a caregiver with nursing experience who had been brought on to tend Carl. She had arrived in the United States in 1959 or 1960, having only three years of English study under her belt. Andrew would paint Helga over the course of the next 14 years, from 1971 to 1985. However, he did this without the knowledge of either Betsy or Helga's husband, John. The Helga pictures, as they became known, remained a complete secret for those 14 years, and when the public did learn about them, they would soon shake the art world to its core. For her part, Helga had never modeled before, but, quote, quickly became comfortable with the long periods of posing, during which Wyeth observed and painted her in intimate detail. You will quickly see how intimate these portraits and paintings are. I will post several examples over on the Instagram. Helga often appears with flyaways or braids in her golden hair, and she is portrayed both nude and clothed, indoors and out, asleep and awake, in different seasons and in different times of day. By 1985, when Wyeth brought the Helga series to an end, side note, how exactly does one decide when something like this is finished? But Helga had appeared in 240 works. These included highly finished tempera and dry brush paintings, as well as watercolors and crude pencil sketches. The Helga pictures are not an obvious psychological study of the artist's subject. I love this description. They are more, quote, an extensive study of her unique physical landscape, her body, set within Wyeth's own customary landscapes. This quote comes from the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., which will become a player in this story in just a moment here. The various poses and features that Wyeth depicts in his views of Helga are a way of exploring different moods and aspects of personality. In the accumulated number of renderings, we sense more than portraiture at work here. It is the embodiment of deeper moods and associations. 
this type of extensive study of one subject in differing contexts and emotional states is quite unique in American art. Some of the works draw on Wyeth's own art historical knowledge. Crown of Flowers, for example, which you can see on the Instagram, was compared to Botticelli's Primavera for the suggestive aura of a personification, if not a goddess of nature, with which Wyeth has imbued Helga. She, quote, recalls the myths of spring and flora, of Venus and the graces, even Eve. There is an allegorical power, if not program, present. In Wyeth's terms, it is making the mundane into the romantic. But remember, for 14 going on 15 years, these pictures were kept a secret from everybody, even Betsy. The existence of the Helga Suite was revealed in 1986 by Wyeth himself, who invited Philadelphia publisher and millionaire Leonard E. B. Andrews to his home in Chad's Ford to view it. Listen to how Andrews describes the day that Betsy and Andrew invited him to see what they had simply described as a large private collection. Quote, I walked over to the mill and went up the stairway by myself and pushed the barrier door up and open, and there on the second floor was the Helga collection. I was absolutely awestruck. 67 framed paintings and drawings were hanging or leaning at random against the walls and posts. The four temperas were along one wall, along with several dry brush and watercolor works. The other walls were filled with watercolor, dry brush, and pencil drawings. On two tables were stacks of unframed matted drawings, preliminary sketches, studies, and finished works in pencil, watercolor, and mixed media. The room was very quiet and well-lighted, and as I walked slowly around, I almost couldn't believe what a rare artistic genius I was seeing, and that I actually have the opportunity of owning the collection. My immediate impression at the time continues to be my firm belief today. The Helga collection is a national treasure. The idea of having a private look at the unseen personal collection of a major international artist, 240 drawings and paintings of one subject, executed and stored over a 15-year period, was mighty heavy for this simple collector. Maybe when you see the full collection, you will feel as I did then, somewhat at a loss for words. My thoughts raced from picture to picture, trying to pick out highlights, only to find myself faced with such an abundance of them that I was almost mute. Andrews ended up purchasing almost the entire collection. He got everything he could, save about six works that Wyeth had given to his friends and his wife. The fact that Andrews preserved the collection intact is also almost unheard of, and speaks to the way that the works operate in relation to one another. What followed in 1987 was an exhibition of the collection at the National Gallery of Art, and then in a nationwide tour. The catalog from that exhibition, which I do have a copy of, opens by blasting, quote, certain critics who came out against the artist before they have even seen the pictures. There was indeed extensive criticism of both the 1987 exhibition and the subsequent tour. The show was, quote, lambasted as an absurd error and an essentially tasteless endeavor. It was viewed by some people as a, quote, traumatic event for the museum. The show's curator, Neil Harris, labeled the show as, quote, the most polarizing national gallery of the late 1980s, himself admitting concern over the, quote, voyeuristic aura of the Helga exhibition. Looking back on it now, having seen a lot of Wyeth's works in person, I admit I was a little confused as to why there was so much criticism over this exhibition at first. Today, as we're able to look back on the entirety of Wyeth's work as a catalog, I think 
there is almost universal acceptance and uh, praise of the Helga pictures. But when I was researching for this episode, this was the first time I really started to read the actual critiques from the time. So I will read you, this is an excerpt, excerpt from the 1987 review of the Helga pictures. This ran in the New York Times on May 24th, 1987. It is by Michael Brenson. She is presented as a silent, earthly woman who seems at the same time bursting with life and curiously absent. She has an inextinguishable glow that comes from what the artist sees as a oneness with nature from which he, with his self-consciousness and dependence upon vision and measure, is excluded. The series was nourished by his need to define himself through her, and sustained by her trust in him and her remarkable lack of self-consciousness. The idea of an accomplished artist confronting one subject over such a long period and seeing reflected in her his desires, limits, and mortality is one of the attractions of this show. Just about every desire and feeling that the artist seems to have about woman is projected onto her. Helga appears as an embodiment of nature and a force of dark and mysterious sexuality. It is not that there is too much of Helga, but rather that there is too little. Throughout this suite, she exists almost totally as an object of the artist's desire. After a while, there is a need to know more, to see more of her family, to know more about how she lives. In this suite of works, which amounts to around 15-20% to 20 of the artist's output during the last 15 years, Mr. Wyeth is what he has always been, a sometimes admirable, sometimes moving, invariably problematical figure whose work reflects the principles and problems of American provincial life. The problem is not the voyeurism or the narcissism or the provincial setting. It is partly a lack of culture. An artist who is steeped in the textures and rhythms of a rural world and wants to communicate its significance must have a literary culture that Mr. Wyeth's work not only does not have, but seems stubbornly to refuse. This distrust of culture is American and provincial. Along with his feeling for surface, self-consciousness, and staginess, it is something Mr. Wyeth shares with pop art. The most serious problem is a lack of imagination. Mr. Wyeth has the American conviction that it is necessary to concentrate on the object in front of him, but he also seems to have little choice since he brings so little from within himself. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that, um, but I think it's interesting that the things that are identified here as problems, number one are, yes, what we would call cancelable offenses in 2022, objectifying a woman, lending her a voyeuristic air in order to build up your own body of artistic work. Those are real problems. But secondly, I do find it interesting that at the same time, Wyeth is supposedly projecting too much of himself onto Helga, but at the end, he's bringing, quote, so little from within himself that that becomes the main problem. So the other point about the lack of culture, um, I think, has been disproven by the test of time, right? We don't disdain pop art anymore on the whole. Well, some people do, but <laughs> those are the same people that decry the lack of a literary culture in the American zeitgeist, and that is not everybody anymore. I think the entire point of Wyeth's work is that it is often provincial and presenting what is right in front of us, but then elevating that through nothing else but inner emotions and a sense of transcending the ordinary. 
I did not expect myself to get that deep right there. Okay, moving right along. That review also blasted the exhibition catalog, which did have a foreword by Andrews who bought the collection, which is something that's kind of unheard of. They were almost presenting why this collection had merit to the reader, to the viewer, uh, rather than letting you make up your own mind. In the catalog, John Wilmerding, Wilmerding, yes, then deputy director and former curator of American art at the National Gallery, writes, it was different than anything Wyeth or most American artists had done before. While Wyeth has always worked in a process of private concentration, producing an extensive sequence of studies from a single image, this group is worthy of attention in its own right. This is the first time the artist has permitted into public view a large suite of sequential drawings related to a single work. Moreover, almost all are more than documentary working studies. They have a polish, refinement, even grandeur, a compelling strength and beauty quite their own. In the wake of the release of the Helga pictures and the controversy that surrounded them, Helga herself refused to be interviewed. At that time, she was a 54-year-old mother of four. Betsy Wyeth was a different story. She told the New York Times of her husband, quote, He's a secret person. He still is not telling me where he painted the Helga pictures or where he stored them or anything. She quickly recognized, however, the significance of the Helga pictures, saying that they, quote, informed and inspired his other work. The paintings became, quote, the well to which he repeatedly went in search of visual and emotional power to invest in his other public work. They permeated much of his work for 15 years, she goes on. There was no letting up in the amount of paintings he released, but the hidden work had a strong influence on other work he's been doing. It's almost as if he gave up an enormous collection of working drawings. I would say probably that the major paintings are as great as the Helga things, but he wouldn't have done them if he hadn't done the Helga things. It seems that Betsy means this figuratively as well as literally. She referred, for example, to a painting which she believed to be among her husband's best works. It is called Barracoon, a portrait of a black woman. The title is a 19th century term for an enclosure or barracks that was used to temporarily confine slaves who were awaiting transportation to the slave trade. Betsy said that she was totally surprised to see this work, but believes that it was essentially inspired by his paintings of Helga. It's a remarkable painting, she said. There's Helga, but she's a negress. I apologize for the outdated term. He told me, quote, it just didn't work with Helga, but he was very tight-lipped. I don't know and I don't pry. I will post the two different versions of this painting on the Instagram and you can see for yourself and decide which one quote works and which one doesn't. As for why Andrew Wyeth fixated on Helga for so long, I have two possible angles for you. One comes from Betsy and the other comes from me, your humble podcaster. Betsy said that Andrew told her that Helga was one of his best models ever. He said, quote, Oh my god, I've never had such a model. He has mentioned how quiet she was, how she never spoke. She was a great model as far as posing. She would look at him and say, you've only been painting and drawing for four hours. He would almost fall over from exhaustion. So it is very possible, and knowing what we know about Wyeth's character at this point, I would say even probable that he just found the perfect model in Helga, somebody who would be a conduit for his artistic process and emotions without raising too much um, 
of a discussion, of a debate, argument. I don't know that this necessarily strips agency from her, but it is interesting to know. I don't know if we'll ever know, but to know if that really was just her personality, this very calm, calming presence to him. There is also the question of the possibility of a sexual relationship between the two. While acknowledging that possibility, Betsy said that she believed such feelings were never consummated in Wyeth's relationship with Helga. Quote, if there is a sexual thing, if he went over the bounds, it wouldn't be a painting. He would lose the magic. It would go. To me, the Helga paintings are very much like ballet, erotic, beautiful, but untouchable. And that's the whole fascination of dance. It's the erotic silence that's fascinating. In a great many pictures, she is sleeping. Her arms are over her head. I've stood the paintings on end and she becomes a dancer. So is she sleeping or are her eyes only closed? She's dancing alone, but who's her partner? For my part, I do believe that there is a sexual angle to the Helga pictures, one that was decidedly not present in the Christina Olsen pictures, for example. But I don't mean that in the physical way that you might think that I do. I say this knowing that I've withheld the existence of a third female muse from you. I hope you can forgive me. Andrew Wyeth met Siri Erickson, who appears in works such as The Virgin and Beauty Mark, the summer before Christina Olsen died. And the summer after Christina's death, he began to paint her. Wyeth said that turning to Siri was, quote, almost as if it symbolized a rebirth of something fresh out of death. She was the teenaged daughter of one of Andrew's friends in Maine, George Erickson. The paintings he completed of Siri were Wyeth's first publicly known paintings of the nude human figure. Explaining his use of a model to express a concept beyond the actual person standing in front of him, he once said, With Siri, you suddenly get this change of such an invigorating, zestful, powerful phenomenon. Here was something bursting forth, like spring coming through the ground. In a way, Siri was never a figure to be painted, but more a burst of life. Thus began a sequence of nude studies, which the Brandywine River Museum posits serves as an examination of sexual self-awareness, from puberty, remember she was a teenager, and virginity, to the mature. Wyeth also seems to have been very aware of, quote, both the idea and the fact of coming of age, because he held on to the Siri pictures in secret until she was legally an adult. Do I find this very uncomfortable? Absolutely. Do I think that it's possible that all of the rhetoric around self-awareness and conduits of emotion is masking the fact that maybe Wyeth was sexually attracted to Siri and the other women he painted? Very probably, yes. I will go on to present the reasoning that curators and historians have given for these, if not relationships, then connections with Siri and Helga. To curator John Wilmerding, this sort of sexual subject matter coming late in Wyeth's artistic maturity suggested an effort to, quote, reclaim that sexuality associated with the earlier stages of human growth, which had now passed him by, and to transpose the powerful idea of regeneration onto a higher mythic plane. After Siri, Wyeth moved on to the painting of a much more mature figure in Helga. Wyeth would have also been aware of his own mortality as he painted these two women, Siri and then Helga, in succession. He was 53 when he began painting the Helga pictures and 68 when he completed them. 
During this time, he experienced several ailments, underwent a hip operation, and had some serious respiratory problems, all stark reminders of one's own mortal tenure. This is the period in life when one faces the paradox of both deterioration and fulfillment, Wilmerding writes. While the flesh may not be a stay against time, Wyeth's subjects allowed him to release the vibrant and sustaining creative energies. And this was, for the most part, a personal journey for Wyeth. In a 1965 Life magazine interview, he said, quote, I never let anyone watch me painting. I don't want to be conscious of myself. I think it would be like somebody watching you have sex. Painting is that personal to me. It's almost as if Wyeth's muses ceased to exist as people to him as he was painting them, if we are to take his statements at face value. They became conduits for inner emotion that flowed through his brush. As such, he could blend the surrealism and substitutions into the realism right in front of him with no problem. It was never about faithfully portraying a person. Andrew also once said, quote, I wish I could paint without me existing, that just my hands were there. When I'm alone in the woods across these fields, I forget all about myself. I don't exist. I'd just as soon walk around with no clothes on. Leonard Andrews, the millionaire who bought the Helga collection, wrote for the exhibition, quote, I have been asked many times what I was told about Helga when I bought the collection. The truth is, I never asked about her. I consider the relationship between any model and artist to be a professional one of their own making and inimportant to the finished work of art, and I respect that. Helga is a German woman with a proud and close family who worked on the nearby farm of Karl Kerner, himself one of Wyeth's most famous subjects. It was clear as we talked that one of Andy's main interests was that the Helga collection be shown to the public in a respectful and dignified manner. Speaking of respectful and dignified, as an aside, Andrews would soon find himself the central figure in a scandal after the exhibition tour wrapped up, when he turned around and sold the Helga collection to a Japanese company, a move that was characterized in the New York Review as crass. In a 2007 interview, when a now-aged Wyeth was asked if Helga was going to be present at his 90th birthday party, he said, yeah, certainly, oh, absolutely, and went on to say, she's part of the family now. I know it shocks everyone. That's what I love about it. It really shocks them. As much as he gravitated towards people, particularly women, who became conduits for his emotional reality, Wyeth did genuinely, I think, love and respect those close to him. One year before he died, Andrew Wyeth told the LA Times that he wished to return to Christina's world. Quote, I want to be with Christina. On January 16th, 2009, Andrew Wyeth died in his sleep in Chadsford, Pennsylvania after a brief illness. He was 91 years old. He was recognized as one of the most important American artists of the 20th century. With his earlier request granted, today Wyeth lies beside the Olsons, as well as beside Betsy, who passed away on April 21st, 2020, at the age of 98. All four of them united, writes Ruth Millington, now belong to Christina's world. A happy epilogue here, Andrew and Betsy's younger son, Jamie, would follow his father's and grandfather's footsteps, becoming the third generation of male American artists in the Wyeth family. Andrew had been the role model and teacher to Jamie that NC had been to him, although his formal art training came from Jamie's aunt, Carolyn Wyeth. He and Andrew shared a studio space until 1968. 
By his early 20s, Jamie had achieved attention for his portraits, including that of John F. Kennedy. Jamie, who is now 75 and lives in Wilmington, not far from Chad's Ford, continues the family legacy of painting the Brandywine region and Midcoast, Maine. He too has found inspiration in the people and landscapes of these two distinctive locales, and while he embraces the realist tradition of his father, Jamie has also developed his own sing singular approach, experimenting with different drawing and painting mediums over the years. His, quote, imaginative approach to realism is perhaps not as hyper-focused as his dad's surreal realism, but they are definitely a continuation of the artistic traditions which marked Andrew's eight decades as an artist. Preserving the places in which Andrew Wyeth's artistic world took shape has been a priority since his death. The Olsen House has been preserved and renovated to match its appearance in Christina's world. It is open to the public as a part of the Farnsworth Art Museum. Because of Wyeth's profile, the property was designated a National Historic Landmark in June 2011. Also in 2011, the Kerner Farm was also declared a National Historic Landmark based on its association with Wyeth. The farm is today available to tour through the Brandywine River Museum, as is the nearby N.C. Wyeth House and Studio, which he built after settling in Chad's Ford in 1907. Also available to tour through the Brandywine River Museum is Andrew's Studio, a repurposed schoolhouse originally built in 1875, which served as his workplace from 1940 to 2008. That one, too, is a National Historic Landmark. All of these are open seasonally to the public, containing furnishings, libraries, and collections acquired by the artists. So be sure to let me know in some comments over on Instagram, in a DM, in an email, what you think of Andrew Wyeth's relationship with his muses. Is this what we've seen throughout all of art history? Is it typical of an artist's relationship with a model and how he builds up a cult of personality around them? Or is it perhaps a decidedly 20th century direction to having a muse which has morphed into something nefarious that we no longer want any part of. Please do make your opinion heard. I will try and put a question on the Spotify listing for this episode as well, so you can kind of weigh in there. As always, if you have any questions for me or other comments about this week's episode, or if you want to let me know what you would like to hear about next, I would love to hear from you. All of the things. You can leave a comment on the Instagram, which is Art of History Podcast. Yes, Art of History Podcast. Um, you can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Um, I'm also on TikTok at Art of History Pod or my personal TikTok where I make royal history videos at Mata underscore of underscore fact. That is Mata M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Remember, you can also support me on Patreon. That is the same handle as my TikTok. It's patreon.com slash Mata of fact. So until the next one, please be excellent to each other, take care of each other, and support other people who are just trying to get by in the hellscape that we now live in as best you can. Bye, everyone. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.